Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public realm art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Eche, an artist and entrepreneur based in Brooklyn, New York. I run Distill Creative, where I curate and produce site-specific art projects for real estate developers. I focus on creating more equitable and inclusive projects, and I want to get more exposure for the artists and developers doing this work. This week on First Coat, we have Natasha May Platt. Natasha is an artist based in Bushwick, New York City. She's painted murals all over the world, but I first met Natasha from one of her murals in the Lower East Side. I used to walk by it every day. I reached out to her for a client project I was working on, and she was so open and genuine. I had no idea she had this amazing background in textiles and embroidery. She actually was working in fashion when we first met, and now she's a full-time artist. Natasha's been posting videos about her work on her YouTube channel, Surface of Beauty, which you should definitely check out. I'm so excited to be talking to her today about her work, her influences, and what it really takes to be a mural artist. Welcome to First Coat. I'm so excited to have Natasha May Platt here today. You may know Natasha from Surface of Beauty on Instagram. She's a mural artist based in New York City, and she has a background in philosophy, embroidery, and textile design. She's painted walls literally all over the world and recently finished a project in the British Virgin Islands and a mural commissioned by Yonkers City Government. She also has a new textile and resin artwork that I'm really excited about seeing. It's in an art exhibit at the Chelsea Gallery, but it's been postponed due to COVID-19. Thank you so much for being here today, Natasha. How's it going? Thank you for having me, Stephanie. It's good to connect via Zoom or whatever we can in this time. Yeah, it's, it's funny because we're not really that far from each other. I mean, <laughs> we could probably bike to each other and meet up. Maybe we can try this again, like in person, but <laughs> six feet away. <laughs> six feet away. Yeah. yeah. I was watching all your videos the other night. <laughs> oh, on YouTube? Yeah. And they're awesome. Can you tell us Thank more you. about how that started? Oh my gosh. I vividly remember the day that I wanted to start my YouTube channel. It was about <laughs> four years ago. I think it was before I became a muralist. <laughs> I was really? doing, I mean, I was an artist but I wasn't yet a fully, I probably had painted a couple murals, but I wasn't, I didn't see myself as a muralist or like think that that could be my career. I just realized like YouTube, this is, this is the platform that I can express all these different parts of myself because, um, you know, like you said, I have this background in philosophy and I have lived in India for a while and, you know, meditation is a really important part of my life. And then I have my artistic practice and then I have my fashion background. And it's just kind of too much to fit into like a photograph on Instagram. And so I realized that on YouTube, a video, even if it's three minutes long, you can sort of weave in, like I'm all about weaving. That's the, that's the textile part. If you look at the video, like a textile, it's like you start by talking maybe about, you know, your meditation and then you kind of paint a little bit. And then maybe there's some footage of you traveling because maybe you're in some place like British Virgin Islands. So it's kind of like your whole life can be woven together and presented um, in a video form. And so this was about four years ago and I didn't get <laughs> to it until quarantine. <laughs> so um, that was my first task that I wanted to accomplish during this time because I was actually really, really busy with murals. I had seven murals that were postponed and I'm still waiting for them to be rescheduled. So I was entering like one of my busiest seasons, but I I was actually excited for the break initially because I realized that I could just start the YouTube now, you know? Um, and so it comes with a lot of stuff, learning editing and learning different video things, which I'm not, I'm not a very technical 
persons. So that was a learning curve. It's still, I mean, it's going to be a learning curve for years. I'm at, I'm at the baby steps, but yeah, that's what I'm super excited about. That's really great to hear. You saw some limitations in the current world of social media. And I think Instagram really tries to put people in a box. You can only post these types of things on this feed and these types of things on this feed. And the way you've incorporated video into your practice is really interesting because I totally agree. Like you're able to put different parts of yourself and still use it on Instagram, but you Mm -hmm. also have like all this other stuff going on. It makes sense. I think it helps people get to know more about you. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) My next video that I'm going to be shooting this weekend is going to be really me talking about my meditation and also how to manifest like sort of the life that you want and money and abundance in art. So I'm really excited about that and also super nervous because it's also a challenge for me because I have issues with my throat chakra, energetically speaking. I've struggled with speaking my whole life. So it's, for me, it's also a real learning curve. Like I don't see it as me, you know, sort of doing something that's unrelated to my art practice. It's so central to my growth as a human being to make these videos. I'm excited to see what I say in front of the camera this weekend when I'm shooting. (laughs) I heard you've actually been on a few silent retreats. Can you tell us more about that? Oh my God. I've been on silent retreats for the last 12 years. It's a very long conversation. Honestly, I think silent meditation is my true purpose on this planet. And I see my art sort of as the Buddha says, right livelihood is one of the parts of the Eightfold Path. I see my art as my livelihood in this world, which I hope is right, right, meaning it brings truth and beauty and knowledge to the world. But it's just one aspect of my human life. My silent meditation retreat, I feel is my soul's purpose. And so it's really a way to encounter myself, my true self, beyond the form of the body or the thoughts or the opinions and judgments. I mean, there's so many layers and it's, it's such a beautiful journey and exploration and discovery. Like, I feel like I'm a explorer of my own mind because, you know, obviously when I started 10 years ago, I was very much in certain types of thoughts. And then I see those thoughts naturally changing. Like I don't change my thoughts. I don't judge my thoughts, but they change on their own. And then it becomes so beautiful and mysterious. I mean, it doesn't happen quickly. It's been years, but you really see yourself as this sort of thing that's unfolding on its own with, and you're observing it to really experience that. And that's like a flower. So that leads back to why I paint flowers. It's this, this unfolding, which happens in its own time. And I really have experience watching that. And I know it's just the beginning. That's what's so exciting is that I know there's so much more that is going to unfold. It's amazing to be able to touch that space in this life and not just, you know, be working and consuming and, you know, having pleasure. Pleasure is amazing, but there's so much deeper wisdom to be had. So in this last year, especially, I've just experienced a huge shift in my meditation practice and it's been, it's been amazing. Is there anything that you'd recommend to someone who wanted to start with silent retreats or meditation in general? Yeah, well, I practice Sudarshan Kriya, which is a breathing-based technique, and it's through the art of living. So that really works for me. I've tried so many different meditation techniques. Art of living was one of the ones that I tried at the beginning, and then I sort of deviated away and did other things and sort of came back and went away. I do feel now, at least in this point in my life, it's the most effective and the most stable because breathing is so connected to our emotions and our body and our mind. It's the breath is the link 
that sort of ties our spirit and our body together. Like the first thing we do when we're born is we take a breath. And the last thing we do when we die is exhale. So you can see that the breath connects the spirit or the mind, whatever you want to call it, and the body. Using the breath to get closer to the mind, I think it's really, really effective. But there's other meditation techniques where, you know, you sit and observe like Vipassana, which I've done as well. But I think it's easiest to work with the breath. Because now I'm super conscious of my breathing. <laughs> well, I don't think about my breathing at all in normal life. Like that, that's enough to drive someone insane. <laughs> like yeah. let the body do what the body needs to do. When I'm meditating, it's like a, a specific series of yogic you know, postures that involve the breath. So it's very like compartmentalized to that time. And then when you do those breathing, you get into the space of meditation. I'm not really into mindfulness as part of, I mean, it happens naturally. Like, again, I see it as a, a fabric or a textile imagery. I see the silent retreats as like you're dipping something into dye and slowly, slowly the dye is getting darker and darker each time you do it. So you don't have to be stressed out in your everyday life. Like, you know, I never try to be like a good person or like say the right things. It's just too much pressure. Oh my God. Just be yourself. And then naturally the dye starts to permeate every aspect of your life, you know? Yeah. Because I think meditation in its truest form is like harmony that your inner world, wherever it is, like we're not perfect. So you're not going to be perfect. Like the inner world having harmony with the exterior world. And that's what manifestation is. It's like whatever I am inside, maybe it's 70% good and 30% uh, yucky, whatever. My life should be also that proportion. And that's perfect. That is like the perfect state of existence that my inner world mirrors my external world exactly. And so I just let my inner world be and I just want it to, to expand into my exterior world. And then slowly as the interior world gets more beautiful, the exterior world gets more beautiful too. But I think the harmony between them is more important than the content of either of them, if that makes sense. So I never, I never like judge myself or try to do all the good like things that a meditator should do. Oh my God, who has time for that? Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's easy to get caught up in like, I didn't do it long enough or I didn't do it correct, but it's nice to hear your approach. I know, because meditation is effortless. Meditation is the act of not doing, it's being. So that's what I'm saying. So being is just wherever I am in my journey as a soul, which is clearly not reached attainment or enlightenment. I'm just <laughs> me. So I'm just being that. And so just sitting in that being and then letting my life be the same thing as I am is, is harmony. It's sort of like if a cell is taking water in through osmosis until it reaches a harmony with the water in the cell and the water outside of the cell, that's the state that you want to be in. That's harmony. I don't think this is a super weird transition but can you tell us about your first mural? Yeah, like well, that is, yeah, that's key. Well, in some ways, it's almost interesting to talk about the first thing I ever made, which basically shows my trauma. Like, I was born into this world having an incredible amount of trauma and fear around making art, even as a child. I never experienced being a blissfully creative child. So, you know, the, my first memory of really creating art <laughs> that, that was like a disaster for me emotionally was we had to make these clay pots or something in preschool or kindergarten. And I wanted to make a horse because I loved horses and whatever. It didn't look like a horse. Horses are not easy to make out of clay. And I cried so much. And my mom 
went to the teacher and asked her if I could come after school and make another one just because I was so upset about how it looked and she let me like she stayed after school I made a new one and I remember the second one I made was a tulip <laughs> flowers are much flowers oh are my much gosh. easier to make than horses so that's why I stick with flowers no but um so there was a lot of trauma and fear that went through my whole life and I sort of dabbled in art and then pulled back and dabbled and pulled back. And when I painted my first mural, back to your question, was really coming out of three to four years of fear and searching and trying to create, but not really finding my way. And I was doing a lot of stuff like face painting and, and different things to try and just loosen my, I mean, I was working in fashion as my job during that time. But, um, and then I suddenly had the idea that I wanted to paint a mural and it was destiny. It was like doors opened because I went on Craigslist, my go-to for everything I need or want in my life. And <laughs> there was a mural opportunity and I wrote to them and they replied to me. It was just meant to be looking back because there are not very many murals advertised on Craigslist. So the fact that I had the idea to paint a mural and I found it the same day and I was accepted the same day. And it just, I mean, the mural was done like two days later wow. and they asked me back for another one. And since then, I've painted like four more murals for them. They are a restaurant. They've expanded as a chain. Um, so we, we started together and we grew together and it was a beautiful experience. And then it was pretty effortless from there. But it's just the right time. I went through years of nothing working out. So, <laughs> What's your relationship with textiles and how does it influence your work? So I started as a textile designer. I worked in textiles for eight years and... I lived in India for three of those years and it's everything. Like I didn't go to art school or design school. So learning about color, form, uh, composition, symmetry, I learned completely through a textile lens and it really, really influences how I create my murals. Even simple things, like I noticed some artists will cut off a leaf. For example, if like their composition is... Uh, finished and the leaf is close to the edge of the wall they'll just cut it off I never cut off any elements because that's like a sin of high-end fashion you should have like every element it's called placement prints you should have every element whole for all the different parts of the uh, fabric that construct the dress so I'm very conscious about things like that and then also the way that I balance color and balance form and balance large and small objects is very much from like a textile design perspective and layering and also my approach to making murals. I'm not hesitant at all to hire assistants and have other hands working because I come from a background where making a single embroidered dress, hand embroidery, takes 65 people to make it. So there's no concept of like only one person's hand is pure enough to make this design. It's like we give them the design and we, we, they all work together to create and realize this design. And I see my murals as the same way. It's like, I know what the design is, but I can have infinite number of hands helping me to create that. So anyway, so there's a lot of like conceptual things about textiles that I've taken, but also I have this textile practice. It's my studio practice where I work with fibers and it's more a pure experience of texture and form and color. And that's the piece you were mentioning that there's going to be in a group show in Chelsea. It's, stripping away textile work to the bare essentials, which is cross-stitch embroidery. And that's a sort of exploring the relationship between women in textile and men in textiles, because in India, all of embroidery is done by men. 
So I'm kind of like stripping away all the layers of culture and, and looking at textiles in its pure form and also from a form of color because um, it's, it's very, very um, simple to work with this simple uh, technique, but then I'm like layering different shades and different colors and I dye all of the fabrics in my bathtub. So I get all these different variants, vari variations of color. So yeah, it's primarily an exploration of color for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see that show soon. So hopefully- Now they're saying it's gonna up. be online. Oh, wow, okay. It was gonna be an amazing show. Like it's curated by this woman, Natasha Schlesinger, and she was pulling, so my piece that I made was actually in response to a piece made by Virginia Woolf, the writer. Uh, did a cross-stitch piece that was evoking water and leaves. There were some floral leaf elements, but then there were also these two naked bathers, women bathers. And um, it's very interesting because she, she and her sister had a textile practice of cross-stitch throughout their lives. Really? Huh. Yeah, I didn't know that. And so my piece, and she has the piece. So my piece was going to hang opposite Virginia's wow. piece. And... That was so meaningful and special. And but the whole show is about comparing modern and slightly historical artist takes on the same thing. So, you know, there was like traditional still lifes and then modern artist still lifes, but it was an amazing, amazing selection of artists. And I was really honored to be shown among them. It's like so much respect for everybody's work. And then now it might just be like an online opening. But also my work is gonna be uh, my textile work is going to be displayed in this upcoming September exhibit, a university, I forget the name, in New Jersey. But it's also really cool, like Cindy Sherman and all these really, uh, Janine Antoni, Antonini, um, they're going to have work there and my work is going to be there as well. So that's cool. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll yeah. definitely link to those shows in the show notes so people okay. can check them out. It's really nice to hear that you're keeping up your studio practice. When we first met, I went to your show and it was the textile yes. resin work. Yes. yes. And it was so cool to see in person. And I, I hope the show goes up still online so it still happens and they don't just cancel it. But also it's really, I feel like with sculptural work and textile work, you lose a little bit of it when you see it as a flat image, you know? Oh, um, absolutely. Especially this resin, because I dip the work into resin. And so it's a, it's sort of a sculptural block of transparent resin, but there's layers, like layers where the textiles are, layers where the paint is. And so it flattens it completely and people can't even understand what it is from an image. So it's very important to see things in person. For sure. Well, I'm sure you'll make us some videos so we'll be able to see it from different sides, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the type of thing video is much better at communicating. Are you an artist? Submit your portfolio at distillcreative.com slash artist. You'll get on our distill directory, our artist database, and be considered for upcoming art commissions. On an interview you did for the podcast, Everyday Creative People, you talk about being persistent and following up with potential clients. You say, maybe we decide what is the right fit, or maybe we just feel that it's right. How do you decide on which projects to work on and how do clients find you? This is so interesting. I remember vividly that podcast. That was the first podcast I was ever on. I can't believe you found that good research. What point in my life was I? I was really just starting and I wasn't a full-time artist yet. And um, I have a very different approach now, which I've consciously changed. 
Um, and so my approach, I think I'm, I don't think a lot of people do this, but maybe they do, but it, by nature, I'm a go-getter. I like, you know, when I, follow up with everyone. Like I don't forget things. I send everyone reminder emails, but I've completely stopped doing that. My attitude now is I'm open. So my favorite quote from the Ashtavakra Gita, which is a Hindu text is whatever comes, let it come. Whatever goes, let it go. It seems very simple, but basically when I'm saying whatever comes, let it come, I am available. If somebody messages me on Instagram, I reply to every single person. I never say no to a project. I say yes always, but I also tell my needs and it's up to that person to follow up with them and do them. So I won't chase anybody ever. And so many people just drop off. For example, a typical conversation could be, hey, could you paint a mural for us? And I say, yes, I always say yes. It doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter what, not, no project is too small. And then they say, okay, how much would it be? And what's the process? And then I say, uh, send me photographs of the space. Um, but usually my walls start at 3000. That's my price now for a single wall. They may never contact me again. And I'm never going to follow up and say, hey, how, how is the thing? Like, did you get a chance to send the photos? Sometimes they'll send me photos like six months later. And I say, okay this is the right time for them now. And, and, some, and it all just sort of happens that way. I let the projects fall where they're supposed to fall. You know, sometimes I go to in-person meetings and I think it went really well and they agree to the price and everything seems like a go. And then they just never contact me, but I never contact that back. I never say, hey, so when were you thinking you want to start? No, they can do that to me. I just am completely open, but I don't pursue anybody. And it's actually amazing. It's like very passive, but very strong. And I always say, yes, they say, uh, can you also paint the ceiling? And I say, yes, and <laughs> it will be, you know, $4,000 extra. I never say no. <laughs> I always say yes. And it's up to them to say no to me that, okay, your price is too much, but I always say yes. So that's my attitude now. It's interesting how your approach has changed from when you were kind of just getting out there, getting, getting your name on walls, literally. And then now yeah. that you've had a bunch of murals under your belt, you, you don't really have to chase people down. I mean, I don't think you really ever had to chase people down that much. I think it's a good place to be and a good way to go about things generally. And as a curator and when I'm looking for artists for projects, like I'm the one trying to get the artist to do something, you know? So like right. I'm going to be emailing them or calling them. I mean, I don't call people usually. I just, I'm emailing yeah. them to get more information, to figure out how much it would cost, get them the information they need, see what they need. And when artists don't respond to me, it's like, okay, they, they're just not interested. Um, but it's kind of on the client's side, I think, to, I mean, definitely to give the artist everything they need to be able to give a good quote and also to be persistent with the artists that they want because a lot of times the clients I'm working for, they're, they want experienced artists, right? Like they want right. people to know what they're doing. And often those are the, the artists who are scheduled six, 12, two years in advance. So if, if I'm not like on top of tracking them down, I might not ever hear from them. And I'm, I don't want to say that when people, when people follow up or check in on me, that it, I never consider anyone like desperate or anything like that. But I do think that the way in which an artist interacts with me when I'm, when I'm reaching out to them, it does kind of show how in demand they are or um, mm. how experienced they are. If they're like, yeah, I can start next week and I haven't given them a budget or a 
contract. When an artist starts working on projects without a contract, it really bothers me. And I always have to be like, please don't do any work. Like we don't have a contract for this. As you know, like projects fall through all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's not Crazy. anyone's fault. Usually. I mean, sometimes it's the developer's fault in, in maybe thinking they had something that they didn't. Um, sometimes the artist has other things that they need to work on that they, they can't do this project. Yeah. Sometimes I've had artists where they're working on work without any email confirmation or contract. And it's really sad for me because we can't pay artists when they're doing work that wasn't contracted, especially when I'm working for a client, right? Like right. they're paying me, I'm paying them. There's this whole like thing. So. Right. Yeah. How, how would you describe your favorite client? Well, I mean, my, my most important earliest client who believed in me and gave me a chance is Yumi Kim. And it's just so easy to work with them because I've kept my prices low for them. I've raised them slightly, but I just really appreciate what they've done for me. And so we have this very balanced, chill relationship where they are like, okay, paint the wall. They Venmo me. I don't even see them. <laughs> it's like, it's not a high pressure thing, but it's my most important mural in some ways because it's of its popularity in Instagram and, and its location. Um, and also the fact that I can change it every six months and they, they support that and they believe in that and they're consistent with that. A lot of clients say, oh, we love that model. We want you to paint a mural every six months, but they, they get too busy or distracted. But Yumi Kim is like clockwork. They're because they're a fashion company, so they understand seasons. So it's very tied to when their spring collection is, comes in. They're like, contact Natasha. It just works effortlessly. I think I've painted seven or eight versions. I have to go back and count wow. um, at this point. Yeah, it's at least that many. I actually lost some of my old murals in this hard drive failure that I had. So I oh, don't no. have records of all of them. But because I, I started it really at the beginning. So I lost a few of the earliest ones. But it's a very uh, trusting, I, I feel that Yumi Kim, uh, well, the woman's name is Kim, but the brand Yumi Kim has the same sort of like open relationship to the world that I do, which is why they believed in me in the beginning. Yeah, they just accept, oh, she wants to paint a mural, we'll let her paint a mural, and then and then they just continue it. And I love that type of relationship. And I have no contract with them. I actually, so <laughs> I have two sides of my personality. I, I don't like contracts because I think that contracts can be, you know, overturned and then you're going to go to court and it's like, are you really going to spend this money to, you know, fight out this contract? Of course, with large projects where there's insurance and for example, the city of Yonkers, it was like a 52 page contract. Oh my God. And, I get that, and that's to be, that's to be expected when you're dealing with any kind of organization, bureaucratic organization. But mm -hmm. if it's a small business or um, a person, an individual, I never write contracts because I believe in trust and I trust them. There are many clients, like I said, who I never follow through on the project with, and they are the untrustworthy people. They're the people that if I tell them, oh, send me a photo, they don't send me a photo. And so that project never happens. But the people that I end up working with are the people who have done all of the steps that I've laid out for them, which may include like priming the wall and painting it for me, getting the right equipment for me. And they do these things, not because it's required in a contract, but because that's what's going to get me to the site. And, and they, I think, respect my like trusting nature as well. So it's like, it becomes a very easy transaction and I prefer to keep it that way. That's how I've done it so far. It's, it's, it's sort of like a revolutionary uh, advice. Like, you know, people always say, yeah, fight for your rights, you know, have a contract. 
But on an individual level, I think it's a personal respect that I always stand up for myself and I always ask for what I need. And so I believe that they will pay me and they always do. I mean, they always love my work so much. Sometimes they give me extra, like really. So um, that's what it is now. If you talk to me in a year, maybe I'll change again. But <laughs> I think that's a good distinction though. Like you have kind of your initial question and if they don't follow up with it, you kind of know where they stand. And then depending on if they're an individual or a small business versus like a government entity or right. a big developer, those are just two different ballgames. And I imagine the budgets are also very different. Sometimes, but you'd be surprised. I was paid like $8,000 for like a small business mural recently. And sometimes these government things, they could be like 6,000 or 7,000. So right. yeah, I mean, it can be, but it's not really about that. It's interesting. Yeah. On the client side, keeping the contract as simple as possible. That's one thing that drives me nuts with my developer clients. They have these intense contracts and I have to be like, can we just use this like two page thing? Like, I know you need something, but it's just, it's really intimidating, I think for an artist. And also the reality is whoever has the most money is going to win anyway. Like you said, like, and yeah. most, most, even an established artist, they still aren't going to have as much money as a huge real, real estate investment trust or a huge, I mean, government entities don't always have as much money right now, but um, it, it, right. at the end of the day, it's protecting the party that has the most assets. Absolutely. And so yeah, I think to your point, like it doesn't always mean anything. I don't like contracts. I feel that like you're saying, it's a lot of, uh, if you, liability gets put back on the artist, damage to the property gets put back on the artist. Like it's a lot of things that I don't like to sign. Um, and I'm always happy when, you know, I work with a business that they ask me if I want a contract and I'm kind of like, no. And then they're kind of like, no too. And I'm like, cool, we're on the same page. Like if something happens, we'll figure it out because, um, we don't have anything in writing. So, because those contracts that I sign, I never feel that they protect me. In fact, they put so much blame and responsibility on me and my workers so whatever. So that's one side. And the other side is sometimes I find things hidden in the contracts, like we own the copyright to your work. And, you know, I push back on that. And I say, that's not in the scope of the, the original project that we had lined out. So if you want that, yes, because I always say yes, I don't say no, I cannot do this. But I say yes, and it will be more money. So sometimes they change the contract that way. Yeah, for sure. You should definitely be getting a lot more money if they're owning the work in any way. How do you make money and how has this changed since you transitioned to being a full-time artist? Yeah, well, I make money by painting murals, but I do believe in, and it's been really, really good actually, but I do believe in diversification of income streams. So I want to get into monetizing my YouTube channel, which is still a long way off, but it sort of takes a really long time then it happens overnight. That's what I've kind of been noticing. So I would love to monetize YouTube and then also um, licensing. That's something I just finished my portfolio for like two weeks ago. Again, it was something I didn't have time to, to work on, but I know someone who licenses their work for all sorts of paper products. I think my work would be really, and, and he gets a steady income from that. So yeah, so licensing and uh, YouTube are what I'm looking at. But so far it's been purely mural work. And uh, I usually paint when it's normal in the world. I paint, I would say, four to five murals every single month. And I sort of have to schedule my vacations in, which I really prioritize because that's good for my body because my body does get tired from all the repetitive motions of painting. 
so much. It was yeah. the golden era of murals before COVID. <laughs> Let's right. see what happens well, now. I mean, now I'm actually doing some digital work for, um, for example, two mask companies. I'm well, doing that's digital awesome. Work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have to finish that. I finished one, but I have to finish the second this weekend. And then I actually was commissioned to make four videos for a client for their social media. So again, my video editing skills came in like right at the right time because everybody wants video now. So maybe that's going to be what I'm looking at in the future is like digital work and video editing. But in the past, it was all murals. I think that's really interesting because a lot of times being a mural artist is real, like, it's like a cool job, you know, but sometimes people don't talk about the, the physical impact it has on you. And like, you can't, I mean, you paint every day. I know you paint every day, but you can't always like paint a 10 story mural every day. Right. So right. there's, you have to have that diversification in activities and like you have your studio practice. Now you're moving into video and doing digital work and all of those together, I think can actually help you sustain a longer, like sustain your life really as an artist. Yeah. Again, like I said, I don't even see my purpose of my life as being an artist. So I prioritize my health and my mental well-being like the most. So I used to go for these Ayurvedic retreats in India for 10 days, twice a year, where they just basically massage you in hot oil for like three hours a day. So these types of things are very rejuvenatory for my body. Yeah, I think you do a really good job of that too. Like knowing when you need to have those breaks and putting, like you said, scheduling them in early so that yes, you're not burnt out. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a, I was going to ask a career, but I think a life like yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I mean, my life is my destiny. Everybody has their own destiny. So that's why I think like meditation is the most important thing because again, it's not looking for something or doing something or trying to be something, but it's letting, it's dipping down into that deepest dye of who you are and then just letting it unfold. But it does take time. Like it really takes time. It's not like meditating. It's not about doing it long or well or correct, but it's about doing it consistently and not judging the experience. I mean, people think like, oh, I meditate so much. I don't have thoughts when I meditate. It's like, you always have thoughts when you meditate, your mind thinks that's what your mind does. Like your mouth chews food and talks, your mind thinks like you're not going to stop the nature of the mind, but it's that you don't get obsessed or uh, captivated or entranced by those thoughts. You're just kind of like, all right, my mind is doing the mind thing. My stomach is digesting food. My blood is going through my veins. Like all of these things are happening, but sometimes we only are our thoughts. Anyway, that's a long tangent to tell that I never thought I would be a mural artist. <laughs> and so it's like, I think the ease that it happened for me comes out of like many years of hardship in other careers. And some people found it very easy to become a fashion designer, right? But I wanted to be a fashion designer. And for 10 years, I was struggling and sort of, it was happening, but I was like hitting walls. So everybody has their thing, which suddenly becomes easy. And it may not be what you think it is, or you're working so hard at something else. And then this other thing just kind of like flowers in the background, and then suddenly it's your life. So that's why I think meditation is the central thing. And that will change. Like I might not be a muralist after coronavirus. Like I just am relying on my meditation practice to guide me into the next effortless evolution of the life. You know, work hard, <laughs> believe in yourself. But all of those things come from from seeing yourself like in your true form from meditating. So that is my, that is my answer. <laughs>
I think that's a really good answer because a lot of times, I think especially with, especially now because we're viewing each other's lives only through an internet connection, which is often like their social media presence or what they're posting on, I guess, what they're emailing out or I don't know. You can manipulate how you present yourself. And I find that a lot of people might be unhappy with their lives, not so much because like maybe they think, oh, if I'm doing this or if I'm doing that, but it's so much more about like knowing what you enjoy and what that is that is fulfilling you. Yeah, what comes to you easiest, but also, like you said, working hard towards it. So it's not like this comes and like all of a sudden I'm a master at this thing. Like it still takes work, but there's a difference between chasing after someone else's dream and just settling into yourself more. Right. And I think that anything you do in life can be easily uh, transferred. Like my mom always used to tell me there's no such thing as like a waste So it looks like I spent eight years working in this fashion industry. And, you know, one of my best friends asked me recently, she's like, you're doing so well now. Like, do you regret all that time that you spent in this fashion industry? And I said, absolutely not. Like all that momentum and all of that energy was built up and it just flipped into this other form. But if I didn't have, and and everyone has that, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can spend, you know, people spend, 15 years being a football quarterback and then suddenly they're something else but it's like all of the discipline and energy and skills that they achieved internally through that through that dedication to a work it it just shifts effortlessly into a new form so our society is so linear like I face so much discrimination honestly in terms of the fact that I didn't go to fashion school or art school Hmm. and they're just kind of like we can't understand you you want to do b but you studied a they don't match and I'm like are you that dumb like I'm a human being I have a body and a mind and desires and I have all sorts of complicated things like do you not (laughs) but they all work together people are always confused when I tell them what I studied in college and then or or that I didn't like study art or yeah I don't know but most of the people I admire they didn't necessarily study what they're doing they probably don't have a graduate degree they're just doing it and they're doing like they're following their curiosity and it's getting them to where they want, right. like where they feel right, you know? And then the other side is like some, some people say, oh, it doesn't matter what you study in college. And like, I didn't use my degree at all. And you could look at it that way, but I believe a thousand percent I am who I am because of what I studied in college, because I studied philosophy because I had all these questions about life and the human soul. And I wanted to know about it. And that's what I wanted to do at that time. And that has absolutely led me to where I am now in my own life. Like maybe the world cannot see the fruits of that. Like I haven't written a book about philosophy, so they can't make the connection. But I firmly believe that, again, if you're following each stone in your life and doing what you think is right at that time, all of those pursuits together inform your existence. It's not, it's not a linear thing and it's not a product-based thing. People look at what you studied and your output, but it's like, oh, you didn't output what you were input, (laughs) but we're not machines that are so linear. Things are much more complex. Like, you know, I have all these thoughts and these feelings and that's who I am as a, as a being. And then I paint flowers and the, the energy that I infuse my flowers with is intangible and derived from my inner state of being and I think that's why people resonate with them and feel something it's not just any flower it's not anybody painting a flower it's me painting a flower with all of the emotion that I have it's it's very hard to explain to some people like that connection but that's okay they can feel it their their soul can feel it and that's why they want my mural in their house (laughs) so 
I think that distinguishes what excites you or what people are interested in and what just kind of falls flat when there's just not much depth to the work. And it's, it, it is t- totally intangible, but it's, it's something that the artist needs, not necessarily art, just like the person, any, whatever you're doing, like having those layers and having that depth to yourself, whether or not people can exactly see it, they're going to feel it in some way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because I get a lot, oh, your murals are so girly, you paint flowers, pretty colors, Instagram backdrops. And yeah, actually, that is a part of me. I don't disown that. I love fashion. I love all the bloggers that support my murals. Like, I don't judge them either as being shallow. Um, You know, to build a successful business doing anything, there is depth and there is struggle and there is pursuing your destiny. So I do not disown just like a pretty decoration. If that's what you see and that's what makes you happy, great, you know, but in all of us, there is so much depth. So um, I don't see a flower or painting a flower as inferior just because it's pretty. It's pretty and it, you know, and also it's the, it's my soul's work. Just painting is itself deep. Like it doesn't matter what I'm painting. I can paint, you know, a person or a flower. Like I don't, yeah, I've never been someone who needs to have an overt meaning to my work like I painted this you know socially conscious revolutionary feminist reactionary piece and this means this and this means that and this means that that's fine for some people I just don't think that way are you a real estate developer looking for a unique amenity for your site get our free guide 10 tips for commissioning a site-specific artwork at our website distillcreative.com what are some things that you've read or listened to that's inspired you recently? Well, again, I love to read and I read a lot of fiction, um, like really good, beautiful, complex portrayals of characters. I'm reading Palace Walk by an Egyptian author. But I'm not going to even try to pronounce his name because I don't know how to. He has this very nuanced description of Egypt at a specific time in history and a family's dynamics and It's just, yeah, I love getting deep into the human psyche through fiction, but I can't say, oh, because I I read this book about Egypt, I'm going to paint Egyptian flowers. (laughs) Not like that. It's just like this whole miasma of feelings. So I read a lot and uh, I just finished the book of Laughing and Forgetting by Milan Kundera, who's one of my favorite uh, writers who I see as an artist because he really talks a lot about form and he sort of like, he'll analyze a memory that someone has in the way of a painting. Like, for example, he was talking about this woman who was in Czechoslovakia when it was being conquered by the USSR and the tanks were coming in, but she was very upset because her apricot trees had not bloomed that season. So he describes like, okay, for the world, it may seem that the tanks coming in to conquer her country are more important than her apricot trees not blooming. But in her mind, it is not like that. And it's this giant tree in her memory with no apricots and this tiny truck, like tank in the background, you know, like the proportion and the scale and the perspective of things. And who is to say what is more important, you know? And so I love looking at at life in in that way and words sort of like open up that space. Yeah. Even in you saying that, it, it makes me think of your use of scale and perspective in your work. Sure. Someone might be like, oh, it's just like a bunch of flowers, but you are very specific in your placement. And that's why you need a picture of the wall. Like you can't really create something without knowing what the space is or who's interacting yes. with it. Yes, that's true. I think about scale and perspective a lot and I don't think it has to be lifelike. Like I can make a bug if I paint <laughs> a bug like 10 times larger than the flower 
you know, and it's just, it's, you're, you're totally right. It's, and that's why I love his writing where he describes in detail these memories. And it's like, yeah, the world tells you it's more important that these, you know, tanks invaded your country. But for her, it really was more important that her apricot trees didn't blossom that year. And I love that. It's, it's giving autonomy back to the human to experience what is true for them. Well, we'll definitely link to those books in the show notes. And <laughs> is there anything else you want to share? Yeah, I mean, I recently heard one more thing, which I thought was interesting. Somebody, my guru actually, but it was in my silent retreat, was saying that there's three types of pleasure. And it's so interesting. Like I'm looking at everything in my life like that now. And they have Sanskrit names, whatever, I won't get into it. But basically, one type of pleasure is a pleasure that has no pleasure, actually, beginning, middle, or end. So an addiction is like that. It's like you have to smoke the cigarette, but you're not like, oh my God, I feel so good right now. Like maybe sometimes, but most of the time, it's just this, this habit that you have to do it. So this is the pleasure that has no pleasure. Then there's pleasure that you feel intense pleasure in the beginning, but then it goes downhill. So you know, for example, eating a bunch of cake really fast and you feel like, oh, I love this. This is so good. And then you start feeling sick, whatever. Or, you know, a love interest. You're obsessed with this person. You can't get enough of them. And then, you know, slowly you start, it starts unraveling. But the third type of pleasure is the pleasure of truth, which actually takes discipline and hard work in the beginning, but leads to ever like lasting joy in the end so an example could be you know running every day for the people that like to run it's like it's not easy initially to start that habit but over time it's like the most important thing in their lives and it continues to sustain them and any discipline basically is like that so you know meditation is like that eating correctly is like that maybe it's not as amazingly tasteful in the beginning but over time you feel better your body feels good so i was thinking about that just in every aspect of my life and every small instance like every single thing like what type of pleasure am i experiencing right now and it's very interesting and i think it's almost like everything that you need to know is in that if you can really be aware of of that well are you saying that you should aim for pleasure that sustains and not the spontaneous yeah. or the empty pleasure yeah yeah but again it's like you don't change your actions really because that that creates disharmony like i really believe in that it's not like oh i shouldn't eat the cake because it gives me the other kind of pl-. it's like don't overthink it it's like do what exactly what is natural to you but it's just like just noticing it. You're like, oh, that's interesting. And I think a lot about my life and different things that I thought, like, for example, I had this terrible year in France when I was in college where I was so depressed and I took a year off from college because I couldn't deal with like college. And for the longest time in my own memory of my life, like talking about memories and perspective, it was that year was like a wasted year. And I, that's how I told it to myself, like, oh, this was good. That was good. And this year it was just that you really messed up, Natasha, like you didn't do anything. But then when I became a muralist, I realized that was the most important year of my life for that thing. Because what I did during that time was just draw sculptures. And so I learned that rhythm, like hours and hours and hours a day, I would go to the museum and just draw. And I learned that natural rhythm in my hand of just the ease of capturing something that I see and putting it down on paper. And it's just like, I had an entire year where I did that, right? Um, but I had no friends. I had no joy. I, I mean, it was like the worst year of my life. And I was like, what a waste. But yeah, everything can be reorganized when you start thinking of it. And it's just, it's just something interesting I, I think about in, in big and small forms in my life, just noticing it. 
That's really cool. You were able to look back at that. And also I think really good advice to just accept what it is that you're doing and notice how it makes you feel like yeah, pretty basic, but so many of us don't do that. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. I just firmly believe like when it doesn't make you feel good anymore, you will stop doing it naturally. So like, for example, I eat tons of sugar, but I never judge myself for that. I'm not like, oh, I should stop eating so much sugar. I mean, I know it's bad for you, but it's like, whatever, like until I physically feel not good from it, then I will start on my own. I trust myself enough that I will not do it when I, when I don't feel good. But right now I'm still enjoying it, you know? <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's the first, it's the joy that's, that's going to go downhill, but it's like, that's where I am. I, mean, I can't change myself. Cause once you start like trying to be so, um, oh my God, then you go crazy. Yeah, for sure. Where can our listeners connect with you online? YouTube, Surface of Beauty. And Instagram, Surface of Beauty, and TikTok, I weirdly went viral, and now I'm famous. Um, oh, I haven't video, seen that. I have to see yeah, that. my first video got 3.2 million views. So it's <laughs> just like, okay. What and so it? I have like 60,000 followers on TikTok now. So yeah, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, I'm Surface of Beauty everywhere. Can you describe the TikTok video real quick? Well, it's actually my Instagram, one of my Instagram TV videos. It's just me painting the Yumi Kim mural. It's the same exact video. I mean, <laughs> it got it got 11,000 views on Instagram, which is still pretty good. It's way more than any of my other videos got. I think what it did, what, what happened on TikTok is at the exact moment that I start rolling the new color on the old mural to like make the base coat to paint the new one, at that exact moment, this guy comes by and my, my assistant was filming me just making the first swipe and he's like, oh no! And I'm like, oh yes! But it was totally natural. Like I didn't even remember I was being filmed. He's like, no! And I'm like, yes! And we're like screaming at each other. So I think on TikTok in that format, it just caught people's attention because they like funny videos. <laughs> and then I realized like that's an example of when you look back and you remember things. Like at the time, I just thought, oh, this guy is like, is he gonna harass me? Like I deal with a lot of like street harassment. But then I'm like, this guy was like the biggest gift of my month, like his presence <laughs> and him speaking out at that time and not just holding it within. It helped me so much. And I, I'm like so grateful to this man. So you never know what impact you have on other people's lives. Right. And the fact that you were saying yes, which I feel like you've talked about a lot. That's so funny. I know. My friend, my, one of my best friends, I sent her the video and she pointed that out to me. She was like, you are just all about yes. You are so in your truth. And I was like, it was just so natural to me. That's what came out. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much Thank for taking time to chat. I'm really excited to link to all the things we talked about today. So definitely follow Natasha on YouTube, Instagram, Surface of Beauty, TikTok. We might see another video from her soon <laughs> on TikTok. You're doing videos weekly on YouTube, right? Yeah. Like Thursday, Thursday night, Friday morning, around that time I post. I think it's super interesting how you've just like dived in, took a class, are doing it yourself. Like that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's my motto. It's just like start. I know my videos aren't perfect. I know my lighting is not good. I'm terrible at audio editing. Some people told me they can't hear my first video. I'm like, okay, I did the best I could <laughs> like, and I'll get better. It's like, if I don't start, then it's never going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really enjoyed learning more about your work and I hope we can see each other in person soon. Me too. Social distancing. I'm all about it. Just walk six feet apart. Well, thank right, you, well, Stephanie. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Have a good, Bye. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review 
Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.